the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Confused about vaccines? Who isn't? Dr. Kinterchuk. That's who. He joins me to provide a guiding light. Also, Dr. Jeffreyon educates us about a subject rarely discussed, the pelvic floor. The Sunday Night Health Show starts now. Happy Father's Day to all of you celebrating out there today. There are two stories about the history of Father's Day. According to some accounts, the first Father's Day was celebrated in Washington State on June 19, 1910. Sonora Smart Dodd came up with the idea of honoring her father while listening to a Mother's Day sermon at church in 1909. She thought that the mothers were getting all the acclaim and uh, actually felt that fathers were equally deserving of a day of praise. The other story of the first Father's Day in America happened, because it all happens in America, uh, in Fairmont, West Virginia on July 5th, 1908. Grace Golden Clayton suggested to the minister of the local Methodist church that they hold services to celebrate fathers after a deadly mine explosion that killed 300 and 68 men. Regardless, uh, there's nothing like a father. So hopefully you honored yours today. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. I happen to have been blessed with the best father, by the way. Good evening uh, again, once again, and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I am your host, Maureen McGrath. I'm a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health Educator, if you'd like to be part of the program, please give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. We have a special Father's Day program for you tonight, guys. So the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well or email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. Tonight on the program, we are going to talk about the pelvic floor, ADHD, ED, intimacy, but right now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Fortunately, this father of one comes to us every Sunday evening. He is assistant professor of viropathogenesis at the department in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. He holds a Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Re-Emerging Viruses. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Oh, good evening. And finally out of quarantine, Maureen. So oh, <laughs> life, life is a little bit better this week. <laughs> <laughs> Launched. Feeling good, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, listen. When when you're stuck for two weeks with a, a toddler and a puppy indoors, it's uh, yeah, it, it, it stretches your imagination. So you know, it's I, nice, nice to be out of that. I can only imagine. It's not something that I would like to do. Fortunately, I have not had to do it, and looks like uh, we might be getting out of this uh, altogether. Hopefully, Canada is going to announce. Um, for those Canadians who are double vaccinated, the return to the to Canada from the U.S. might or other places might look a little bit different. Um, so that's that's the benefit we're hoping for for tomorrow. Um, but also the border has been uh, the extension of keeping the border closed uh, is going on now until July 21st. So what do you make of all of this, Dr. Kinderchuk? The Americans, are, there's more of them that are double vaccinated than Canadians. Uh, they seem, they're seemingly safer yet. They still can't come. Uh, but fortunately it's looking like Canadians are going to, uh, be able to forego that quarantine. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked a bit about this with uh, with a few interviews this week, and and certainly with uh, with you know colleagues of mine about the importance of messaging. I mean, I think one of the areas where we've really faltered as compared to the U.S. has been the discussion of what does full immunization schedules give you as a Canadian, as a person that has gone out to to get those doses. Um, you know, that's something that still isn't very clear, right? And I think, you know, certainly there's a moral aspect to it. Uh, obviously, you know, for myself, that's that's something that, that is very near and dear to my heart. But we also have to think about the fact, too, that when we think about incentivization, one of the biggest incentives for us is understanding what, you know, how this changes all the things we've gone through the last 14 months or so. So I think we're going to get some of that guidance, uh, you know, very, very quickly. I, I don't think there's any choice but to do that. Um, but I also think that our understanding of what is considered safe and, and certainly from the, the U.S. experience, um, you know, we've been able to glean a lot of information. And I think we, we've got to give that back to the Canadian public. I think we do. Uh, the The Prime Minister uh, say, said that the border would stay largely shut until 75% of Canadians had received the first dose of a two-dose coronavirus vaccine and 20% had been given both shots. We're at about 66.6 and 18.1% respectively. Um, how long is it going? It's like, I feel like it's like the end of a football game. You know, there's, there's two minutes left, but it lasts another hour. <laughs> so yeah. how, when can we expect um, us to get to 75% from 66.6? It doesn't seem like we're that far to the, uh, <laughs> the goalposts, but it could take a while. Well, here's the way to look at it, right? Is that there's, there's a couple things that, that are going on. One is, just from a numbers perspective, I think we're very close. I think we're within a you know a few weeks of reaching that. The part that we don't have a you know a lot of clarity on is specifically what groups um, are we not hitting right now to reach that extra seven percent to get up to say seventy five percent. You know, in terms of second doses, I think you're going to get people that are going to be coming in for their second doses as those clinics open up. The first doses, you start to look at the areas where maybe we're having some hesitance or maybe we've had some, uh, you know, people that have been refractory from wanting to, to get immunized at all. So there is that, that thought in the back of my mind of saying, you know, this might actually take a bit of time if it's not just an issue about accessibility. So to me, listen, you, you figure out ways to make vaccines accessible to people. You get them out in mobile clinics, especially when, there's, when we're this close. And you hit those people that, you know, purely are looking at this and saying, I, I just don't have the ability to drive in during the hours that the clinics are open to, to get immunized. Let's get all those people done and, and get through this so we can get back to some normalcy. And let's also get some vaccine supply. Uh, it, it looks as though fi- the Pfizer, the mRNA, uh, one of the mRNA vaccines is going to be in short supply in July, which might also affect this. And then the other thing is social media. I'm hearing from so many people, especially younger women in their early 20s who are on Facebook groups who are, who are spreading basically vicious rumors <laughs> about the safety uh, of the vaccine. Uh, I mean, the vaccines now have been given to millions and millions and millions of people. And yet people continue to say, I'll wait till more people have gotten the vaccine or I'll wait until there's more evidence surrounding it. How safe are these vaccines? Yeah, I mean, I think and I have a call. Co- at- go ahead. Oh, go ahead. And then we'll have a call. We'll say- have Evelyn on the line. Yeah, go ahead. How safe you, are they? Look, 
when you look at the safety profiles from across the globe, I, I think they're unbelievably safe. Now, we know there are some instances of side effects, certainly the clotting issues we've seen. Certainly, there's, there are discussions right now about the myocarditis issue we're seeing in, in young age groups. We have to rectify those. But when you look at the total number of vaccinations that have been given globally versus the number of side effects or, or, or um, you know, unfortunate uh, instances of, of uh, adverse reactions that have been identified, it's it's such a low phenomenon. So to me, I look at that and say, like, these these are really very, very safe vaccines. Absolutely. So Evelyn's on the line from Winnipeg. Good evening, Evelyn. Hi, Maureen. Okay, this is this is perfect because I heard news and your lovely doctor co-host here will have an answer for me, and I hope he will. Um, I I heard news in in the late news about Waterloo, and there was a patient that uh, was fully immunized but got the COVID. Okay, so does that still mean that the vaccines are safe and we're allowed we're allowed to get the vaccine and not to worry? Because I haven't even got my first shot yet, but I'm booked. I'm booked for, yeah. for my first shot. I'm glad you're booked. <laughs> yeah, I'm booked. Yeah. But the thing is that this makes me nervous when I hear stuff like this because, the, yeah, because, you know, we're, we're looking at changes. And when we, when we hear stuff like that, they might take our changes away. See? This well, is... <laughs> let, let's look at this from, from the perspective of the vaccines, right? So the, okay, the one thing yeah. we have to appreciate with the, the vaccines are not, they're not 100% protective, right? But okay. we actually see amazingly high, like 90 plus percent protection from severe disease, from symptomatic disease for Pfizer, Moderna, as well as decreased uh, infectivity, which means people are you know, getting infected less, they're transmitting less, but it's not 100 percent. So that means you still are going to have some people, especially those that have, you know, uh, you know, that are immunocompromised or whose immune responses may be okay. uh, somewhat lower than normal. They may still get infected, but when you think about the buffer of all the other people that are immunized around them and all the other people that are protected, what ends up happening is that that virus and that person can no longer spread or transmit as widely as it would have been able to before. So that's, oh. that's what we're looking at. Is we, we've accounted for the fact that people may still have these breakthrough infections, but when you look at the percentage of times that happens, it's well below 1%. It's, it's probably oh. below, I think, point, like 0. 0.06, 0.05%, if not lower of the time we see those. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. My guest is Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. You've heard his voice before. He is all things COVID, and he's been recently launched from quarantine. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kindrachuk. I've got a couple of callers. Maybe it's about uh, what um, we were talking about, the uh, National Advisory Committee on the Immunization Statement. So let's see. We've got Benny on the line from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Good evening, Benny. Good evening. Yeah, a friend of mine that's from South Africa was told me that his brothers there, uh, that they're using IV mectrin in South Africa to kill the virus, yet the scientific studies state that it's not to be used because there's no... There's there's nothing to prove it does kill the virus. So I was just wondering. Apparently, uh, President Trump took it. Uh, but anyways, does the doctor? What can the doctor tell me about ivermectin? It, it was invented about fifty years ago. Yeah. So so I, ivermectin. Yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, what I'm going to tell you about ivermectin is 
then we and not not to sound sarcastic we give it to our dog once a month um honestly for uh for for, for parasites it certainly is is a drug that has been widely used in uh in animals there's been some studies in humans um the, the problem is so it was theorized that it might actually provide uh, a potential uh, kind of antiviral effect um, against the, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, which causes COVID-19. So far, in all the studies that have been done, we haven't seen any statistical benefit with, with ivermectin. Um, so what we've gotten into is this kind of war of, of words between anecdotal data um, and, and anecdotal reports versus what we've actually seen from, from data that's being, uh, being accumulated. So well, certainly there are areas of the world where, where people are using drugs off-label um, without any studies. I've, I've certainly seen it in West Africa uh, during the Ebola the epidemic. Again, without having any other prior information with those patients, um, you know, what other drugs they're getting, what, what their underlying health conditions are, how controlled the studies were, we can't take anything from uh, from those studies outside of what what basically people are telling us, which is usually secondhand. So I, I'm very, very reluctant to say that there has been any positive data that's come out of, of Ivermectin, just, just like hydroxychloroquine uh, before it. And I think Donald Trump said a lot of things <laughs> during the yeah. pandemic, but I want to talk a little bit about the people who might be nervous out there who got the AstraZeneca the uh, vaccine first they were told just get whatever vaccine you can and they did and now the national advisory committee on immunization on the 17th of june uh made some recommendations can you tell me about those recommendations please dr kinderchuk absolutely so so what nasi came out to to recommend was that rather than people getting a second dose of astrazeneca that they actually move instead to the the rna based vaccines um, and here's here's where we get into this debate again, where the data certainly aligns with what they're saying. The communication or the messaging was certainly not as good as it should have been. Um, this is really based on the fact that listen, data that's been accrued so far looking at the mix and match combos between AstraZeneca and the RNA vaccines have suggested that actually the mix and match combo gives superior uh, immune profiles. So we're seeing better antibody responses. We're seeing better um, I think better overall profiles within those people that get the mix and match combo. And certainly you get away from any underlying concerns regarding clotting like we saw with AstraZeneca. So if you're not in a public health crisis and you have the ability to get better supply of, of the RNA vaccines, it makes intuitive sense that you move to the thing that maybe has a bit better safety profile, but also seems to be giving a better immune response. But what needs to also be stated is that the people that got the AstraZeneca, the dual Astra, AstraZeneca vaccine, got a great vaccine. Again, we looked at, at data coming out on the Delta variant from the UK, looking at AstraZeneca as well as Pfizer. And you look at the two-dose vaccines, and listen, AstraZeneca has done an amazing job there again against another variant. So I think we have to be very careful with saying, yes, the, we have updated the recommendations, this is what happens in, in sciences. We, we were always worried or thought this might happen with the, the mix and match, that we might actually get something that's superior. So then we moved to a different type of, of immunization schedule. But you still got a great vaccine with AstraZeneca if you got both doses of AstraZeneca. Uh, we've only got about a minute left to go. But uh, I know in the U.S. they are 
um, not advising mixing and matching. They're, they're, if you got an AstraZeneca, they're suggesting two mRNAs after that, three weeks apart. Just quickly, any comments on that? We have 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah, no, not really. <laughs> I think they're, they're just going with <laughs> the two doses so they know they get full immunity with the, the RNA vaccines. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kinderchuk. Until next week, um, and I'm certain we're going to have some uh, new things happening between now and then. So congratulations on your launch and appreciate you being on the program. Up next, we... Thank you. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I've invited my next guest on to educate you about a new social media campaign called Be Pelvic Health Aware. It helps uh, to provide patient education, which is critically important and aims to build a dialogue about the pelvic floor and the conservative measures that women can take to keep their pelvic floor healthy throughout their lives. Dr. Roxanne Jeffreyon joins me on the line. She's associate professor at the University of British Columbia, fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, and chair of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Residency Research Committee. Good evening, Dr. Jeffreyon. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show tonight. Such a great oh. pleasure. Oh, well, it's, uh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for joining me on, on Father's Day in particular. Take you away from great fathers in your life. Um, so tell me a little bit about, I, I know the work you and I have, have worked together and uh, you've, you've worked arduously and over a, a number of years. Um, why this social media campaign now, Be Pelvic Health Aware? What's the importance of it? Well, um, you know, it started approximately three years ago and it really all started with, with my patients and um them just asking me about the best source of information for their pelvic floor diseases, and then just about some information to take back to some other family members of theirs, their daughters um, who were pregnant at the time, or their even their younger granddaughters. Um, and so they're asking me for these sources of information. And um, although the internet and social media are great resources, sometimes as you no, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So mm-hmm. um, about three years ago, I, uh, I was uh, sort of browsing the Internet, and I fell upon this uh, Doc Mike Evans 24-hour fitness video, um, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. It's whiteboard animation, so it's uh, real-life drawing and, and um, you know, speaking at the same time. And I thought, what a great way of conveying knowledge and what if we had that for you know, pel- the, explaining the pelvic floor? And so um, I partnered with a, um, uh, a scientist in knowledge translation, um, who from, also from the University of British Columbia, and we discussed all of this. And we said, well, why don't we just start um, by taking some guidelines for best practices um, that, that we have and just making videos out of them. Um, and so then we were looking for places to actually advertise and put these videos online and um, we uh, got some more funding over the years and our project grew and uh, so now we have a website and we also got funding from the uh, Michael uh, Smith Foundation for Health Research to amplify our message through a website, a dedicated website. And so this website, Be Pelvic Health Aware, is launching tomorrow along with a whole social media campaign and it's essentially dedicated to 
sharing some information about the pelvic floor, but not just information, evidence-based information. That means, you know, information that has been vetted by strong research um, to explain to women what their pelvic floor is, what it does, how it behaves through the different stages of life. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how it started. And then we're launching tomorrow, just provide more information and, and uh, information that's grounded in research. Congratulations on the launch. This is awesome. Now, one of two women will experience one or more pelvic floor symptoms during their lifetime. What are some of those symptoms and what are some of those pelvic floor diseases you talked about, you referred to? Yeah, so, um, you know, our website is not uh, complete. It's a work in progress, but we're starting by explaining to women a a little bit about their bladders, their bowels, and also uh, a little bit about pelvic organ prolapse. Um, But it's presented from um, a point of prevention. So uh, there's a lot of information on our website about pregnancy and how that changes the pelvic floor um, and how the pelvic floor is made of muscles and ligaments and weakness of those can can produce symptoms and what they may be. Uh, And so although there's a bit of information about urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, bowel issues, uh, the focus is on prevention and exercises that women can uh, can do to, uh, for example, prevent perineal tears during childbirth or um, successfully continue to engage their core muscles in, um, you know, keeping their core strong and keeping their pelvic floor strong to prevent some of these problems that uh, typically become more pronounced as women age. And your goal, I know, is to help all women to be pelvic health aware by creating this sense of community surrounding pelvic floor health. And you, know, you want to empower women to speak to their healthcare providers about childbirth trauma, healing, and prevention of further disease. One thing I hear from women postpartum is that they will begin to leak urine and they had no idea that that could happen to them or, you know, young women who will have a pelvic organ prolapse. And if you wouldn't mind just explaining to the listeners what exactly is a pelvic organ prolapse? Of course. Um, so pelvic organ prolapse happens when there's some weakness in the pelvic floor muscles and ligaments of support. And then pelvic organs such as the bladder, the uh, uterus, the bowel, or even the vaginal walls themselves are bulging or sagging downwards because there's no more adequate support for them. And so women will, the most common symptom of pelvic organ prolapse is a bulge in the vaginal area that is that can be felt or seen just at the vaginal opening or beyond. Uh, and that's pelvic organ prolapse. Um, and, and that can happen to women who are young. It can happen to women in their 30s after they've had a baby or 20s. I mean, really, at any time in, in a woman's life. Um, but many women are, are completely unaware of the risk of pelvic organ prolapse or that it might happen to them, but it can be devastating for some women. It can result in, in sexual pain, discomfort, voiding issues. What are some of the other issues we see with pelvic organ prolapse? Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. So some of the other issues are that uh, it's quite hard to treat and also women may experience it after their first childbirth. And then if they're interested in having a larger family, 
Um, oftentimes, they're counseled to, uh, you know, put up with uh, with the prolapse until their childbearing is complete, and then have it uh, fixed uh, in some way. But uh, really, these are younger women, uh, you know, at the, the height of their productivity and. Um, you know, wanting to lead uh, excellent lives. And so this can be a, a, a major bother and it can affect their ability to exercise, to engage in, in intimate relationships um, and just to lead overall uh, healthy lives. Um, and so yeah, absolutely. You're, absolutely, you're absolutely right about the fact that, you know, women, to, to many, many women, um, you know, these pelvic floor disorders come as a complete surprise after they give birth because that's when they first start to manifest themselves. So that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this, this website is to try to explain to women what pelvic floor disorders are from the lens of what happens in pregnancy and why uh, or what are some of the risk factors that can produce some of these disorders. And um Things like, for example, pelvic floor muscle exercises, commonly known as Kegels, are best learned before women are pregnant, before they give birth, so on an intact pelvic floor. And that's such an important message that is unfortunately not out there enough. It it isn't, and also um, proper instruction on how to do Kegels properly as well and and how long you should do them before you see an effect. If you, you know, you may or may not see an effect and may need to go on uh, to something else. You know, Dr. Jeffrey, on a a few years ago, I had a uh, listener who was listening to the program and she heard me say the word prolapse. That was what she said when she came into my office. Now, one of the conservative treatments for a pelvic organ prolapse is a pessary, a small medical grade silicon device that's inserted into the vagina. I don't have to tell you that. Um, and so she came in and she said her husband had died seven years prior and she had taken over the business, which was, you know, managing a lot of um, buildings and she had prosodentia or complete prolapse. So her, basically her bladder was, had fallen out, um, of her, you know, had come right down and, and part of her uterus and, and anterior wall. And, and she said, I can't believe that you have fixed me in five minutes. So uh, basically put a Gellhorn pessary in her. And, um, and she was able to actually, you know, have a much less stressful life. There's a, there's a huge impact on physical and emotional well-being for women who have problems with the pelvic floor. Yes, absolutely. And we have this, uh, I hope that, you know, everybody going to the website tomorrow and in the, in the, in the following weeks will take some time to um, look at our, or watch our pessary video because the word you, you know, it came to mind that when you were telling me that story, life-changing is actually mentioned in that pessary video um, at a, a certain point in time. <laughs> and it's just, it's just absolutely unbelievable some of the feedback that we get through our, our pessary clinic for sure. And as, as you well know. Absolutely. And one of the common myths is that pelvic floor problems are a normal part of aging. You are to expect this um, after you've had a baby or during perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause. And this is just the way it is. And that's not true either, is it? Oh, what, what a false message. Uh, it's uh, fake media at its best. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, that one cannot say that often enough. It's, there, it's definitely not a part of normal aging. And um, it's, uh, you know, baby, the baby boomer generation are experiencing a silent epidemic of pelvic floor disorders. Uh, they're not necessarily talking about it. And if, if that's the main message that we give women, that there's no help out there because it's a normal part of aging, 
uh, we really are misleading them. And, uh, you know, that's exactly one of those myths that this website we're launching tomorrow is aiming to debunk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. My guest is Dr. Roxana Jeffreyon. She is an associate professor at the University of British Columbia and the director of the UBC Fellowship in Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery and chair of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Residency Research Committee. She is a practicing physician. If you have a question for the doctor, do you know how long it takes to actually get a referral <laughs> or to wait to see a doctor these days uh, if you have pelvic floor issues? The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. But Dr. Jeffreyon is talking about her new campaign, which is going to help so many women be pelvic health aware. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Jeffreyon. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So um, some of the guidelines, people may not even be aware that there are guidelines around pelvic floor health, um, but some of them, if they are aware, they may be difficult to understand. Um, you know, we hear levator ani and fascia, and we don't really know what it means uh, as it relates to the pelvic floor. So tell me how, why you decided to take those guidelines, which are typically utilized by physicians and other healthcare providers, and adapt it uh, to more lay language or, or plain language um, about pelvic floor health for women. Of course. Um, so we, um, as obstetrician gynecologists in Canada, have a national society called the Society of OBGYN of Canada. And uh, this society has different subcommittees of different subspecialties. And urogynecology, or this branch of medicine that deals with um, you know, pelvic floor diseases, uh, also has its own committee within the SOGC, and uh, we are uh, mandated to produce guidelines for practicing physicians, and that's also for family doctors uh, and anyone really, uh, any physicians caring for women with pelvic floor disorders, and um, also allied health such as nurse condense advisors or physiotherapists and so on. And so these guidelines are very well researched. So they reflect the best evidence that's out there in medicine about um, every topic um, in OBGYN and these pelvic floor diseases that we've been talking about. Um, but like you say, they're uh, very inaccessible. Um, even as a physician, you have to have a, a membership to the SOGC to actually get, uh, you know, get access to these guidelines. And occasionally they're free for, uh, for, for perusal, but sometimes they're not. And even if they were, they're not really accessible to the general public in terms of their language and so on. So what, uh, what I wanted to do is uh, take these guidelines subject by subject and try to produce one whiteboard animation video per guideline in such simple language that my 16-year-old daughter would understand. And as a matter of fact, we now have four videos based on four guidelines. And, um, you know, the first reader of video scripts is my daughter. So she needs to understand it. And, um, and, uh, and it needs to be in simple language because we know that um, when research comes out, it takes two decades almost before even clinicians can be aware of it and apply it in clinical practice. And it takes even longer for the general public to understand the implications. And 
um, and um, you know make sure they're they're well cared for. So it's important. You know, patient education is so important, and that's why we're launching this campaign tomorrow. And like I said, it's not it's a work in progress, but um, we very much appreciate um, any feedback on the videos or on any other parts of of our website to continue to produce this information for all out there who are interested. I think it's amazing because many women uh, go to their doctors and and they might feel like they have been dismissed in large part because uh, some general practitioners may not uh, know, may not understand the pelvic floor themselves or may not understand that there are preventative aspects to uh, treating pelvic floor disease or prevention of pelvic floor diseases uh, and that there are many conservative measures. And so, this is why this Be Pelvic Health Aware campaign is so incredible, so that it's a place for women to go uh, and to learn. Because, as we said previously, when a woman is 35 and, and leaking urine, it can, ha- it can impact so many aspects of her life, from her intimate life to her physical life. She may have to stop running if she's a, you're exercising. She may gain weight, have body image issues. Um, I mean, the work that you're doing is just incredible. And and how what what do you how do you feel women will benefit as a result of this campaign? Be pelvic health aware. Well, uh, my my main aim um, I hope to be able to empower them to talk to other women, spread the word, amplify the message, and um, also just talk to their healthcare providers more often. Um, so even if they see, oh, wait a minute, it's not a normal part of aging, maybe I should go seek help. Um, and that's why uh, we focus our campaign on prevention and conservative measures first. Uh, there's a lot of information out there on things like surgery, for example, for pelvic floor disease, but nobody really talks about prevention or so much of the, of the conservative measures, such as pessaries or exercises or core fitness or um, you know, even simple things like in labor, apply a warm compress to your perineum to prevent perineal tears. And so all that uh, information we've uh, tried to include in this first iteration of our website. Um, and the other thing that I should underline is that uh, we I've, I'm not working on this alone. We have a fantastic team uh, made up of a patient partner two pelvic physiotherapists, knowledge translation experts, Women's Health Research Institute advisors and communication coordinators. And so, um, you know, there are several aspects to our website. And, for example, the our pelvic physiotherapists have been instrumental in... Rox, um, oh, Dr. Jeffrey, I'm going to, sorry, I hate to cut you off there, but we're, we've got a hard out. Um, what's the best way for people to access the website? Absolutely. And so it's launching tomorrow. It's bepelvichealthaware.ca. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.